0: to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Lord God, I just thank you so much that you allow us to be able to come here and to worship you, Lord. That is why we're here. Lord, we worship you in our song. We worship you in our study. We worship you in our prayer. Lord, we're here to worship. I pray, Lord, that we would have ears to hear this morning as Dan prayed. Lord, that our hearts would be open and ready to receive your word this morning. Lord, we thank you, Jesus, and in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, Matthew chapter 19. Verse one, it starts this way, and now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea Judea, beyond the Jordan. Well, it says that when he had finished saying these things, so that kind of asks the questions like, what things did he just finish saying? Well, if you've been with us the last couple weeks, especially last week, you know that in the last (laughs) chapter, he talked a lot about being humble as opposed to being prideful. He also reminded them that there wasn't anything that happens here that God doesn't know about in heaven. He talked; he said a lot of things about forgiveness and how crucial forgiveness is. And he warned them about the prison of unforgiveness in that last parable in chapter 18. Now it seems that he has departed from that area and he is moving towards Jerusalem where ultimately he is going to be crucified. So then it says in verse two, and a great multitude followed him and he healed them there. And the Pharisees also came to him testing him. And, and see, we see that Jesus now is, is very popular at this time. A lot of people have heard about him. A lot of people have heard what he's able to do. A lot of them have heard the things that he said, which is different than anybody they've ever heard before. And so now he has a great multitude, it says, following him along. Not just a multitude, but a great multitude. Do you know how many people are a multitude, a great multitude? A great many. Anything over a hundred, they said, is a multitude. And this is a great multitude. You know what it says in Revelation chapter seven, and when John is getting this vision of heaven, and he sees a great multitude in front of the throne of God, and it says that it was so great a number that no one could even number it. Is that the number of people here? I doubt it. This is probably a smaller number, but you get the idea it's a great big crowd of people now following after Jesus, and he continues to heal them. Why does he do that? Why does God continue to heal the multitudes? What have we seen over and over and over? Mercy and grace and compassion. He's filled with it. He's going to his ultimate death. He's very close now. And it doesn't stop him from going and saying, I have compassion on the crowds. I'm going to heal them. Now, what we see with this great multitude is also great opposition. We see the Pharisees are going to come now, and they're going to try and take advantage of this great multitude, and they're going to try and cause division among the people. You remember last week we used the verse, uh, we went to Proverbs Ah, I forgot it. Six. It says that these six things the Lord hates, yes, these seven are an abomination to him. And the very first one on the list was what? Pride. You know what the very last one is? Uh, One who divides the brethren. God hates that. He hates division among the church. Paul will write in Titus 3, Chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 9 and through 11, it says, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and self-centered." person that seeks to cause division among the brethren or the body, Paul says, is warped and sinful and self-centered. That spirit of division is an abomination to the Lord. He hates that. But yet this is what they come to do. They think, okay, we've tried everything, We've tried to trick him. We've tried to challenge him. We've come to him and said, show us a sign of our choosing to prove who you are, who you say you are. And at every step, Jesus has outmaneuvered or or, um, outsmarted them or or talked them around in circles. And now they're going to come to him with a very controversial issue, even then, um, divorce. So let's take a look at that. It says that they came to him saying, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? I want you to notice right off the bat, they weren't asking him whether divorce was okay or not. They, it was already a foregone conclusion. They wanted to know for what reason or can a man divorce his life for any reason? And so here's, here's the thing. At this time, there were two rabbis, two schools of thought that were teaching about divorce. You had Rabbi Shammai who was very... Um, conservative and he looked at what was taught about divorce and he said, well, the the word says that um, you can only divorce your wife if you find some uncleanness in her. And he said that that uncleanness meant only um, sexual immorality or adultery now, on the other side of that debate was Rabbi Hillel, and he was very liberal in his understanding of the word, and he said, you can actually divorce your wife. Uncleanness means anything that makes you unhappy. If, you, if anything about your wife makes you unhappy at all for any reason, then you can divorce her. And that went down to like, well, if she um, talks to another man in public, If she insults your parents in front of you ever, if she burns your food or puts too much salt in the dinner, you can claim that you were assaulted. (laughs) Uh, That one's a joke. But the burning your dinner or insulting your parents, those were real that was real. And so they were, they were saying, okay, we've got him because he's going to have to go one way or the other here. We're only giving him two choices. Are you, are you with Shammai? Are you with Hillel? And whatever choice you make, you've got such a big crowd here that you're bound to alienate half at least. They're like, oh, we got Jesus now. So this is what happens. And he answered and said to them, have you not read? They love that, I'm sure, when Jesus, he's talking about the Pharisees. These are the guys that know the word inside and out. And every time he says, have you not read? And they go, that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, man shall leave his father and his mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one... Separate. Let no man separate. And see, Jesus very cleverly, instead of answering their question about divorce, goes to what? The original plan for marriage. See, Jesus doesn't answer from the words of Shammai, and he doesn't answer from the words of Hillel. He answers from the words of God. God created us. It says, he made us male and female. By the way, we didn't decide that. We still don't. We don't decide whether we're male or female and we should not do that. That is God's decision. It says, he says, when he's quoting this, he says, for this reason, man shall leave his parents and cleave. For what reason? Did you ever ask yourself for what reason? would you ever read that verse and say, what does he mean for that reason? Well, the reason is, did you know That in Genesis, where he's going through the uh, creation account, he says, well, he did this, and then he saw that it was good, and he created this, and he saw that was good, and everything was good. It was all good. He saw it was good. Do you know the first time he says that it wasn't good? When he saw that man was alone, he said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will create a helper for him. And then the very next section, it says, and so then he had Adam name all the animals. Dog, pig, porcupine, platypus, you know, so on and so forth. And they said none of those were right to be the partner or the helper. And so he created woman, male and female. He created woman to be his partner because it wasn't good for man to be alone. And so he created woman from man. So the reason is that he's speaking of so they can be joined together as one flesh, inseparable. And so when Jesus is really, he really answers their question. He says, what what God has put together, let no man separate. So they're saying, well, you know, is is it right for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? And Jesus says, God created man and woman and he created marriage. And when that happens, no man can separate that or should separate that. By going back to the creator of marriage, Jesus reminds them that, The one who established marriage is the only one who can control its character. There's no court of law that can change what God has established. Ah, but they do, don't they? They try. They've replaced God with their own wisdom. They've replaced God with their own authority. Actually, they've replaced God with themselves. Jesus here uses the term They become one flesh. It's a physical union. It's not one spirit, one flesh. Eventually, our flesh passes away. But our spirit lives on. To God, the passing away of our flesh or death is the only thing that can dissolve a marriage. When one of the two dies, the remaining person is one flesh again. That's why adultery would be allowed as a reason for divorce in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it was said that if if, um, adultery is involved, then you can be divorced. Do Do you know why? Because what was the penalty for being caught in adultery? Death. You'd be stoned. That means one of the two couples' life ended. Death was the only reason to dissolve a marriage. in the New Testament, the Romans had taken away their right to execute anyone. And so um, divorce had become symbolic of death of a marriage or the dissolving of a marriage because of adultery, but only adultery. That was the only acceptable reason. By the way, God has not changed his mind on this. Adultery is still the only acceptable reason for divorcing God's eyes. So if you're here today or you're listening some other place and you are divorced for some other reason, does that mean that God has turned his back on you? Does it mean that he doesn't love you anymore? Does that mean that you are no longer welcome in heaven? Of course not. God is merciful, is he not? I jotted down a couple of verses for you, Ephesians 24, 4 and 5, Ephesians 4, 4 and 5, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our, our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. Deuteronomy 4.31 says, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant he made with your fathers that he swore to them. And I love this one. And you know this, John 3.16. For he so loved the world, by the way, the world that hated him, that he sent his only son to die in our place and to pay the debt we owed. That's not in the verse, but you know that's true. That's true. So that whoever believes in Jesus should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's mercy. God's ideal for marriage was a man and a woman for life. Divorce for any other reason than adultery means that you have failed to meet his ideal, that you have missed the mark. Lest you think I'm judging you, missing the mark means what in the Bible? Sin. Guess what? The Bible also says we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God and need forgiveness. Now, I've been forgiven, you've been forgiven. And when I sin, the Bible says that when I go to Him, And confess my sin that he is faithful and just to forgive me of my sin. So that if you've been married and divorced, your sin is forgivable. But what I have to do when I sin is confess it. And what you have to do with your sin is confess it and be clean and be restored into beautiful fellowship with Jesus Christ. Amen? Well, they think they have Jesus right where they want him. Look at verse 7. And they said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away. They're like, ha, 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 see, you're going against Moses, which is the law, of Jesus, we got him. And Jesus said, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Moses permitted them because of the hardness of your heart. He didn't command it. He did it because of the hardness of their hearts. Uh, Look, it's in Deuteronomy chapter 24. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Moses permitted it. Do you ever think about what that meant because of the hardness of your hearts? This is really actually a a huge act of mercy on God's part because what he did was he said, men, if you are going to divorce your wife, you must give her a certificate of divorce so that she can take that now and show that she is no longer married and can be married again because if she wasn't married, guess what? She had no provision. No one to take care of her. And what was happening is these men were divorcing their wives and basically casting them out of their house and leaving them to their own uh, provision, which they had no way to take care of themselves. And so God in his mercy towards women says, husbands, you must give her this certificate so that she can be married again and provided for. It's an incredible act of mercy that he says, because men, your hearts are hardened This is permitted, but this is the process. Also, did you know that it wasn't quite that easy to just write a certificate of divorce? It gave them a little time to think about it, think it through, rather than to react in an emotional moment. They had to take a little time. But the Pharisees are saying, no, Moses commanded it. And Jesus is saying, no, he permitted it because your hearts were hardened. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, and marries another commits adultery, and whoever commits, marries her marries her, her, who is divorced, commits adultery, and he's reminding them that this, that act is sinful. But I remind you, not unforgivable. <laughs> the disciples are listening to him now. Now, you know, these disciples, we only know of one that's married, for sure, right? Peter is the only one that we know who's married. The other guys may not even be. They're younger. Maybe they're not married yet. It doesn't seem like they are. We never hear much about it. And it says the disciples said to him, If such a case, if such is the case of the man with his wife, is it better not to marry? It's kind of a strange question, isn't it? What they're saying is, Well, wait a minute. You're saying that we have to stay with the same woman our whole lives? And they're looking at Peter, and Peter's going, yeah. I was, I was say, you see, the culture has affected them so that they're saying, well, I mean, is that what you're saying? Wait a minute, Jesus, should we, should we not marry? Because, you know, um, if we get married, you mean we have to stay married? And Jesus is saying, this is a hard saying. All cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has be, been given, For and he's talking about Not being married. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him hear it. There's three definitions for the word eunuch. One is a person who was born with a a defect who was unable or doesn't have the equipment necessary to procreate. The second is uh, those who were made that way because of the service that they were in. oftentimes men who were in charge of a king's harem, for example, were castrated so that they didn't have any drive. Um, and then the third are those who choose to remain unmarried and celibate. Those are the three that he's talking about. And he says that, when he says that not everyone is able to do this. Essentially what he's saying is, um, if you're going to be unmarried, then unmarried means celibate. If you're going to be married, it's going to be for life. Two very serious things to consider. If you're going to be married, you're married for life. That's the ideal. If you're going to remain single, it means celibate for life. Both of those are very heavy, serious issues that you all, that everyone needs to take into consideration, but that is what he is saying to them. It's serious. Getting married means you're standing before God and you're entering into a covenant agreement with him that says, I am going to be with this person forever. Do you know, it seems like people are getting married these days for better and for worse, but not for long. Verse 13, it says, then the little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray, but the disciples rebuke them. So you have a scene where you've got probably the mothers are bringing their little children to Jesus so that he can lay his hands on them and just bless them, and the disciples are trying to hold him back, saying, no, 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 he's much too busy. He's way too important for you to bring these little children to him. You know, in Mark's gospel, it says that he saw this and he was greatly displeased that his disciples would do this. Why would that displease? Do you know the couple of times that we see Jesus angry for the same reason? Both times it was when he goes into the Gentile temple, uh, courtyard of the temple, and sees that they've set up a marketplace in the middle of the courtyard. Essentially, what they're doing is they're keeping the Gentile people from having any access to God. That was the only place that they could go. And it makes him so upset. Jesus gets very upset when he sees that anybody is blocking anyone else's access to God. And especially these little children. He says, I am never too busy for a little child to come to me so I can bless them. But the disciples are trying to keep them back. And it says he was very displeased. And he said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them for such is the kingdom of heaven. I read one commentator which wrote this, little children do not try and make themselves worthy. They simply come as they are. That is what we all must do. We cannot make ourselves worthy; we simply come. As he laid his hands on them, and and he laid his hands on them, and departed from there. Now, behold, one came and said to him, "Good teacher, what thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life?" We know from the other gospels as well. If you you read through all all the three of them that write about this, that this is what we know. This is the guy that we know as the rich young ruler comes to Jesus. And in Mark's gospel says that he fell on his knees before him. And he says, good teacher, what thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? This is where most people are. Wouldn't you agree? Most people are like, what do I have to do to get into heaven? Well, I've already figured it out. I just have to be good. Well, how good? Well, well, more good than bad. Okay. Well, how are you measuring that? What is the main thing that people say when they say that they're good? Why are they good? I've never killed anybody. That's super extreme, by the way. I've never killed anybody. You know what that is? A bad thing you didn't do. That's not something good you did. It's a bad thing you didn't do. How does that measure in heaven? I don't know, and it doesn't matter. He comes and he says, What good thing must I do? We know the rich young ruler had many possessions. Essentially, what he was saying was, What can I do to add eternal life to my long list of possessions that I already have? Did you know that we can't purchase our salvation? You guys know that, right? We've talked about that. What is salvation? It's a gift. In fact, it says in the Bible that salvation isn't something that we can purchase. It says that it's a gift of grace that we receive so that what? No one can boast. Do you remember that part in Ephesians? So that we can't boast about it. Because if salvation was based on our works, we would boast. We would boast. We would boast about the good works that we had done. We would boast about the good works that we were going to do. We would boast about the good works that we were thinking about that, what we were going to do. We would boast. And then we would compare. We would boast and we would compare. Well, I mean, I have more good works than you, obviously. Also, by the way, you know that if God gave us a list of good things to do to earn salvation, if he said, This is what you have to do. Read three chapters of your Bible every day. Memorize a verse each week. Make sure to forgive at least seven people this week. Feed a homeless person each month. We would initially say, okay, got it. And then immediately turn around and say, three chapters every day? How about we get Sundays off because we're already in church? And if you doubt that, look at what his answer is. Jesus says, uh, well, first of all, Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good but the one that is God. You know what's interesting there? He doesn't actually say he's not good. He says, why do you call me good? God is the only one who's good. He doesn't say, I'm not good. In fact, what he's saying is, what you've just recognized is the truth. I am God. He never says, I'm not good. He says, why do you call me good? I know why I'm good. Why do you call me good? Only God is good. Are you saying that I'm God? But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He says, if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. And so the guy says, what? Which ones? ones? It's funny that he assumes that Jesus didn't mean all of them. He says, keep the commandments. He's like, oh, all right, which ones? What? Read the Bible every day? Which ones? Jesus is being so kind to this man. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do you you see what Jesus tells him right there? He takes basically the second half of the commandments, all of the commandments that have to do with you and other people around you. And he says, do all these, make sure that you're following all of these outward commandments. The man says, all of these things I have kept from my youth, but, He still knows that there's something that he lacks because otherwise he'd be like, all right, thanks Jesus. I'm good. And off he would go. And he comes in the first place to Jesus because he knows there's something that he lacks for eternal life. There's something inside him that says you're missing something. You have great wealth. You have great possessions, but there's something in you you're missing and you know it. And he comes to Jesus, and he says, what is it? And Jesus says, follow the commandments. And he's like, which ones shall I follow? And Jesus is literally going to say, well, all of them in a minute. But he says, do these six. And the guy says, oh, I've done those. I've already done those, and yet I still feel like I'm missing something. I've been good. I've done these things since my youth, and I'm still missing something. Do you want to know that that's what drew me to Jesus? Like, I think I've talked about this in the past. I didn't have any friends. I had friends. I didn't like any of the ones I had. (laughs) I didn't have any community. I felt an emptiness that I was like, I don't know how to fill this. I think I'll fill it with groups or clubs or activities or golf. Golf drove me. (laughs) Never mind. (laughs) That was the wrong idea. Golf is not a sin, in case you play golf. I'm not saying that at all. It was for me, <laughs> the way I played. He still knows, what do I still lack? And Jesus said, if you want to be perfect, go, sell what you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. He says, you, you want to you stand before God in heaven, you have to be Perfect. Is Jesus saying that to be cruel? No, it's true. You actually have to be perfect. But can you be perfect on your own? No. You want to know when you stopped being perfect? The moment you were born, because we were born with sin. The moment we're born, we are no longer perfect. And if you think that somehow that's not true and you're just going to keep the law, well, I follow the Ten Commandments if you've ever transgressed even one of them once, the Bible says, guilty of not being perfect. So what what now? Jesus says this. He says, um, young man, your identity is in your possessions and in your successes. You have to let go of that and you have to come and follow me what he's saying is that you have to let go of who you think you are based on what you've done because that's never going to be enough to get you into heaven what you have to do is let go of all of that and you have to follow me we are perf- we are seen as perfect by God because he sees us through Jesus Christ if Jesus wasn't there i would be seen as sinful and imperfect and a wretch but through Jesus Christ because of God's mercy He sees me as perfect, holy, and acceptable. This guy was saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's actually an interesting, he was almost there without even knowing it. He said, what do I do to inherit eternal life? You know how you get an inheritance? Somebody dies. You can't purchase an inheritance. Somebody dies and you receive it. And isn't that what happened? Jesus died For us, and we received that inheritance. Man, he was almost there, almost there. Well, when the young man hears this, it says that he heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possession. See, Jesus asked him to be separated from what meant the most to him. Do you want to know something interesting when it says the word here that he went away sorrowful? It's the same word that is spoken of Jesus when he was praying in the garden and it says that he was grieved because Jesus knew that there was a coming, a time when he was going to be for a time separated from his father in heaven for the first time ever the thing, that was, the, the thing that was most important to him, he was going to be separated from the father and it grieved him. And it's the same word of this man, the thing that was most important to him. Jesus was saying, you need to be separated from that. And it grieved him so that he went away. He just could not get there. Then Jesus looks at his disciples uh, then, and he says, surely I say to you that It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why? simply because a rich man has money? No, but because so often a rich man's identity is in his riches and his success and in his accomplishments. And Jesus is saying the only way into heaven is to let that not be your identity and follow me. Sometimes the more you have, that's the more you have to let go of. But Jesus isn't saying, well, rich people can't go to hell and poor people go to heaven. He's not saying that. It comes down to where is your identity? Do you belong to Jesus Christ or do you belong to your possessions? It's odd to say it that way. Your possessions can possess you. But that's the truth, isn't it? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, he says, that's an interesting way of saying it. it, can you get a camel through the eye of a needle? If you have a really big blender, maybe. You could, yeah. It'd be, and then it takes a long time to pour it through. But it would be, you know, nearly impossible, right? Is kind of what he's saying. So. Now, look at this. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? the disciples are walking with Jesus now three years, still in the back of their mind, they're thinking, well, if you're, if you're rich, that means you've been blessed by God. And if you're poor, that means you've been cursed by God. And so when Jesus says, it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven, they're like, well then who could be saved? And Jesus is like, I roll those who follow me. And Jesus says, with men, this is impossible but with God, all things are possible. He says, there is nothing that men can do to get into heaven. Do you see he's reiterating this message? There is nothing you can do to get yourself into heaven short of coming to Jesus Christ and saying, forgive me of my sins, please. I accept what you did on the cross for me. I believe that you died for me. And now you go to heaven, not because of you, but because of him. Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have, Peter? I can always count on Peter to say what I'm thinking. Peter answered and said, we, See, we've left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on his throne of glory, you who have followed me will also sit on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left house or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or wife or children or lands for my sake shall receive a hundredfold in inheritance and eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. You know, I'm going to save that part because it goes along with the next chapter. So I'm not going to explain that at all today. I'm simply going to leave you with this. God is merciful. God loves you so much that he sent his son to die on the cross for your sins. God goes through great lengths to remind you that there is nothing you can do to strive to earn your salvation. It is a gift because he knows that for any other way, we would boast about what we were able to do. And not just boast, but we compare ourselves to others and say, I'm much more holy and righteous than you are. So I'm probably gonna do better than you. Mercy. God is merciful. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you so much for this word today and for the reminder of your mercy and your grace in our lives. Lord, for your gift of salvation that you gave through us through the death of your son Jesus on the cross. Lord, I just thank you for the reminder that there is no amount of striving that we could do in order to earn our salvation, but rather that it is a gift. Lord, I thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Lord, I confess there are times that I am not upholding your ideal and I have missed the mark, Lord. I pray, Lord, that even now as I stand here that you would bring to mind the places where I have fallen. Lord, that I might bring them to you in confession and be cleansed from all unrighteousness that I might be restored to perfect fellowship with you, Jesus. Thank you. Lord, I pray as we go out of this place today that we would remember what we've heard the last few weeks. Lord, the putting away of our pride, the embracing of your humility. Lord, forgiveness. Lord, I pray that we would remind ourselves that pride and, and div- division in the body, Lord, is not of you, Lord. That we would strive to forgive one another that we would above all things as much as depends on each one of us live in peace with one another i thank you jesus in your name we pray amen